And in that time, the beast didn't so much as take a heavy breath. He glanced ahead, then behind, unsure from which direction the onslaught would come. And the deeper he went into the tunnels, the more confused he became. Where was he? On he went, bits of bone crunching under his feet. Once he even kicked a skull, sending it rolling ahead, sending a rash of fright down his spine. Come on, he hissed, show yourself. But the sound just died away in the heavy black void. Savage as it was, the beast was no dumb animal. It was part human, and its thinking half was proving both wily and calculating. It was a dangerous thing, this monster that thought. Where are you? Leaving the stinking closeness of one of the smaller tunnels, he found himself at a junction in the maze. Then, as he looked around, his heart lurched. He had just tripped over the thread that marked his own path. The string lay crisscrossed over itself. I'm going round in circles, he said in dismay. Ignoring the tunnel where the thread lay on the floor, he chose a passage that sloped gradually downward. It was getting colder and the stone floor was oily with puddles of foul water, dimly shining globs of something unspeakable floated on their dull surfaces. Something stirred, hooves scraped on the floor. Then he heard breathing, slow and steady, calculated and unhurried, a predator's breathing. The thought made his legs weak and rubbery, he turned a corner and found himself at another junction, from which more passageways spread. The beast chose that moment to make its move. There was a scraping sound in the gloom. He spun round. Framed in the half-light of one opening, the beast was pawing the ground. He clutched the sword's hilt the way a drowning man clings to a piece of driftwood, and, for the first time, its weight made his arm shake. His strength was draining away. He tried to grip the hilt with both hands, steadying his weapon. Come on then, what are you waiting for? But still the beast stood in the archway, pawing at the floor. It was bigger than a man. It stood almost three metres tall and was massively built, with slabs of muscle on its chest and shoulders. Below the waist, it was bull-like. It had a swinging tail and mud-splattered hooves. Or was it mud? Above the waist it was a man, except for the head. And what a head! The muzzle was huge, and when it opened it revealed the sharp curved teeth, not of a bull, but of a big cat. They were fangs made for ripping flesh. Its eyes were yellow and blazed unflinchingly through the murk. Then there were the great horns, glinting and sharp, curving from its monstrous brow. The beast stepped from the tunnel and the boy took a few steps back. It was as if his soul had crept out of his body. In the sparse light shed from the gratings in the ceiling, the beast looked even more hideous. There was sweat gleaming on that enormous neck and shoulders. But that wasn't all. The creature was smeared from head to foot with filth and dried blood. It began to stamp forward, its hooves clashing on the stone floor. It raised its head. 
the horn scraping on the ceiling, and gave a bellow that seemed to crush the air. I can't do this! He fell back, scrambling over obstacles on the floor, and fled. That's when he realised he'd dropped the ball of string. His lifeline had gone. Oh, no! The beast was charging head down. Got to get out of here! In his mind's eye, he could see himself impaled on those evil horns. Suddenly he was running for his life, skidding on the slimy floor. Help me! He saw the startled brown eyes of the girl above the grating. Don't run, she cried. Fight! You must fight! He was almost dying of shame. This wasn't supposed to happen. He wasn't meant to lose, and there weren't meant to be witnesses to his defeat. Fight, she repeated. It's the way of things. The way of things? That's right, he was meant to stand and fight. It was in his nature as a hero, but he couldn't. Not against that. Please, he begged, turning his face away from the girl in shame. Somebody help me! The beast was careering through the tunnels, crashing, bellowing, thundering through the maze. Its charge was hot, furious, unstoppable. It was almost on him. Get me out of here! That's it! he cried, throwing down his sword. I've had enough! Game over! Ripping off the mask and gloves, Phoenix bent double gulping down air. The dank half-light of the tunnels was replaced by the welcome glow from the lamp in his father's study. He glanced at the score bracelet on his wrist. It registered total defeat. Zero. For a few moments, everything was spinning, the claws of the game digging into the flesh of the here and now. Then his surroundings became reassuringly familiar. He was out. It was a game. Well, his dad asked, what do you think? Mind-blowing, Phoenix panted. It was so real. It was like another world. I, I mean, I was Theseus. I went into the palace of the tyrant king, Minos. I could actually touch the stone columns, feel the heat of the braziers, smell the incense. He knew he was babbling like a little kid, but he didn't care. The king's daughter, Ariadne, helped me. And she wasn't just an image on the screen. She was a real girl. Then I actually came face to face with the Minotaur. It was really happening. I believed it. He shivered. Still do. Oh, I could tell how convincing it was, said Dad, enjoying the mixture of excitement and fear in his son's voice. You were screaming your silly head off by the end. I bet your mother thought I was killing you in here. Phoenix blushed. He picked up the mask and gloves and traced the attached wires back to the computer where images of the labyrinth were still flashing away on the screen. It really was just a game. Dad smiled. That's all. Just very sophisticated software hooked up to even more sophisticated hardware. Phoenix fingered the soft texture of the amazing gloves and mask that had created the illusion. And you get to play with all this great stuff for a living? I certainly do. And there's a lot more to come. To quote my boss, Mr Glenn Reed, this is only stage one in the development of the ultimate game. Maybe now you'll quit complaining about moving to Brownlee. Now that was asking a bit much. 
When Dad gave up his job at CompuSoft and accepted the lucrative offer from Magnacom, he'd fulfilled a lifelong dream. Only it was his lifelong dream. Phoenix and his mother had hated coming out of London, away from family and friends, especially when it meant resettling in a backwater, halfway between Dullesville and nowhere. We could have stayed in London, Phoenix argued. After all, you're working from home. What was wrong with the house we had? Where do you want to start? Dad asked. The noise, the pollution, the rat race, the crime? Phoenix shook his head. The city had got Dad down, but he could keep his peace and quiet. Brownlee was a dump. No cinema, no sports centre, no railway station, nothing at all. Phoenix was still trying to work out what people did round here. Maybe they took a chair out onto the pavement so they could watch the traffic lights change. Anyway, said Dad, unplugging the mask and gloves from the PC. We're here now, so make the best of it. Phoenix watched Dad carefully wrapping the experimental game equipment. There's something I don't understand, he said. You've produced this game so quickly. I thought it took months to get something like this off the ground. Years even. Well, it does, Dad agreed, with the usual technology. But this is several steps beyond the norm. Half the work's been done for me already. More than half. The company has developed a basic computer environment. It's so flexible that you can program in each new storyline for the game in weeks. I take the storylines your mum comes up with, and with a bit of help from me, the software just seems to grow into it. Phoenix frowned at the mention of Mum's storylines. Mum and Phoenix were two of a kind. They both had dreams. They both had a sense of destiny. Her dream was to be a writer. She'd been trying forever to get published. She actually kept the rejection slip.